0: So uh, we are in the third week of Advent. Thus, the three candles uh, being lit. Uh, most of you know that we have been we have been taking this this Advent season to look at the why. Why did Jesus come? What what is the kind of the purpose for which He came? Uh, and we've been looking at that through by by using the the hymn, the Christmas hymn, uh, "Thou Who Is Rich Beyond All Splendor," to see what it was because that hymn is all about Jesus uh, being in a state of Something great and then leaving that to take on something not so great for us. And so this week, we look to the fact that Jesus went from the fullness of love to the terror of forsakenness for the glory of God and for our salvation. So if you have your place, we're in Mark 1 this morning, if you'd stand uh, in honor of God's word, that's our habit. we will be reading two different passages. It's going to be projected behind me, so don't feel the need to flip through, um, and I, I believe it's in your, in your order of worship. We'll be reading um, in Mark 1 and then in Mark 15. Okay? This is God's word to us. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And a voice, or the Spirit, descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. And then Matthew, or Mark 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come into this time, we ask for your blessing on on it. You have called us here, not just to worship, but to hear from you. And so we ask that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us. Jesus, this season is about your coming. And so as we lean into uh, the purposes of that first coming, we ask that you would give us hope and joy at the prospect of your second. And we would look in longing anticipation for it god open our open our minds to understand our eyes to see you our ears to hear from you you alone hold the words of eternal life jesus and so we ask this in your name amen have a seat now uh again you remember i we've been taking our cue from that christmas hymn that was rich Uh, Beyond All Splendor. So two weeks ago, if you were here, you'll remember what we talked about from uh, John's Gospel, from the first chapter, is that Jesus left omnipotent power to go to vulnerability for our sake. And then last week we looked at how he went from a position of complete fullness, what the Bible calls wealth, because obviously we're talking about God being rich. We don't mean with dollars, like it was satisfaction, fullness, perfection, left that to come to abject poverty, to emptiness, for our sake. This week, though, we take on a, a little more relational tone. We're going to talk about love. Talking about love is dangerous. It's dangerous for a couple reasons. First and foremost, it's dangerous because it's uh, it's just essential to humanity. Everybody loves, right? Uh, the the. The 5th century church father, St. Augustine, uh, used to describe it in terms of, like, that is the core of who we are. We are primarily, fundamentally, lovers. And we will go after what we love. So we all have that experience. But the, the other side of it that's dangerous is that many of us struggle with the experience of being loved. It's just not been our norm. And so even beginning to talk about it starts to touch places in our hearts we don't really want touched. Okay? Here's what we're going to see this morning as we dig into this. That the mission of the incarnation of Jesus took him from love to forsakenness so that he might take us from being forsaken to being loved. Now, we're going to look at this in three ways. That's in your outline. You can leave it there if you want, or you can write notes. We're going to, we've got uh, of love and forsakenness, of forsakenness and love, and uh, delight and belief. So before we get into this, I want to, I'm going to state something that kind of undergirds this whole topic. Because if you're new to the Christian faith, or or um, maybe new to the Bible, some of the stuff in these passages might just kind of hit you a little weird. Maybe you won't understand it. So uh, let me let me kind of give you a little bit of an intro. Because Christians... Have a different understanding of God than anyone else in the world, and that's that's what's really drawn out in this passage. Uh, you know that that's why you know maybe maybe you didn't know that, maybe you didn't realize that, maybe you've kind of been uh, lulled into believing that talk from the culture that basically everyone's understanding of God is roughly the same, and it's just different kind of aspects of the same thing. But it's actually not true. Christians wouldn't say that, and non Christians probably wouldn't say that if if they're being honest you see Christians believe God to be personal to be absolute and to be complex personal absolute complex here's what I mean uh, in Islam God is absolute but he's not personal right in um, like pagan religions in the new age in um, deism God is personal but not very absolute um, and, and none of them have a complexity in God. And by complex, I mean what I've said the last couple weeks, that that God exists as three persons with one substance, and those persons are called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, not three, one God. One what? Three who's. That view of God is completely unique. Why am I even talking about this? Because these two passages that, that I just read are some of the few in the Bible that actually detail that complexity of God, interactions between those persons. So let's look at that let's look down first at love and delight so here's what's going on in chapter one of mark you 've got the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the first chapter of mark 's gospel, and, and so you've got this dude named John who's out in the in the wilderness in the Jordan around the Jordan River baptizing i don 't have time to go into why he's doing that or what it was, but but he's out there doing that. Jesus shows up Mark's account is very brief, others have a longer one where Jesus and John are talking, and john 's all wigged out by the fact that Jesus is coming to him, but in Mark, simply, Jesus comes, he gets baptized, and after he's baptized, Mark says that John sees the heavens ripped open. Like, not just kind of like, oh, there was a shining light, like, the the language in Mark is very clear, torn open, the spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove, and then a voice calls out, alright, now what's going on? So like I said, this is the beginning of Jesus' official ministry. And scholars will tell you that uh, what is happening here is Jesus is being set apart as God's king. And there are a bunch of different Old Testament images that are playing out. Uh, But what is important for us is the fact right here that we have the Father speaking, the Son receiving, and the Spirit descending. God is present in all of his complexity. But we're going to focus specifically on the voice in verse 11 when God says, you are my beloved son. In you I delight. Now, this is all very biblical language. That would make sense, right? Because God wrote the Bible. You know, it makes sense if biblical language. You are my son comes from Psalm two. If you're if you're a Bible nut and you love to cross reference these things, that's the word Psalm two. So write that down. You can go look at it later. The um, the one in whom the delight comes from that's that's from Isaiah forty two. And some have said that this is solely about Jesus' role. That God is basically saying, like, you're my king and I love having a great king. Um, that's, that is also being said, but it's not comprehensive. So stay with me for a minute because this is important. Two things are going on in this, this very short verse that's, that, that are key for us. The first is that when... When he says, this is my son, that is grammatically something that's continual. Not something that happened in time, but a continual state. Okay, this is talking about Jesus as the son forever. Uh, The last part about delight, it's very difficult to describe in English. But it means that delight is something that happened primarily in the past, not right then at the baptism. Now, why does this matter? It matters because what we are witnessing is not just how happy God is to have a good king. What we are witnessing is the kind of relationship God the Father has with God the Son. That word beloved is important because that is actually not a part of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, you are my son. But God adds it in here. And it means both the one I love and it means the one who is uniquely loved. And so God is saying, over Jesus, this is my boy. And I love Him. I delight in Him. It sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? Some of us in this room know what that's like. We know what it's like to be gushed about over. To have someone not just kind of love us, delight in us, but express that. To, to want to tell everybody else how much they love and delight in us. That's pretty cool. Others of us, though, don't have that experience, do we? See, we, we hear things like this, and we think to ourselves, yeah, right. Our heart starts to stiffen. We get a little tenser. We, ah, this, can't be, this can't be right. Or we think to ourselves, well, that's good for him. Because you've long since assumed that this kind of experience is for others, but it's not for you, right? So if that's you this morning, here's what I'm going to ask of you. Um, I'm going to ask for you to suspend judgment for just a minute. Well, more like 20. If you can suspend judgment for the next 20 minutes, that would be great. Because I think God may have something more for you. Your experience is not abnormal, but it's also not complete. The Bible teaches and Christians believe that God exists in an eternal relationship of love. that's what this is talking about. God's not talking about, here is Jesus, and now I love him. No, no, no. He's saying, I have always loved him. It's an internal relationship of love. This is why uh, John, in his little, little book, 1 John, says that God is love, right? Not that he is loving, though he is that, but that he is love. It's essential to his being. It can't be essential to his being unless there are those three persons. Because if it's not, or if those three persons aren't there, then he needs something else. He needs creation. Love becomes contingent. But it's not. God is love. It is who he is. God the Son, the one we call Jesus, has existed for all of eternity in the fullness of being delighted in. Of being loved totally And perfectly. And loving perfectly in return. Can you even imagine that? Never a question. Never a doubt. Nothing but the fullness of love. Nothing but being enjoyed for exactly who you are forever. But Jesus' story doesn't stay that way. Flip over to Mark 15 if you've got your Bible. Here's what's going on there. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He'd been put through a trumped-up trial by the Jewish authorities and by the Romans. The Romans didn't find any guilt in him, but that never stopped them before from crucifying random Jews, so they went ahead with it. We're told here that from the sixth till the ninth hour, darkness came over the earth and Jesus cried out. And and some of you, if you're paying attention, notice that whatever he cried out was given to us in two languages. That's weird, right? Like what why why that? I mean, if Jesus spoke Aramaic, which is what the first language is that were given, why would you why would you put that in? Well, think think with me for a minute. I want you to imagine. That you, you may have actually been standing there on the banks of the Jordan as Jesus is being baptized. You may have heard the voice of God. This is my boy and I delight in him. And then after three years of walking with this amazing person, you're standing nearby at the foot of the cross. And you're watching and listening to a broken man cry out in dereliction. In utter abandonment. That makes an imprint on your brain, doesn't it? So much so that the very words, the language in which it was in, you can't think of it in any other way than that. That's why Mark puts it in here in that language. Because those that were there, it made an impact on. But then he translates it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? it makes us think, like, is this even the same guy? Is this the guy who heard, this is my boy? It, is it? I mean, it is. We know it is. So, so then did Jesus do something that made God angry? No, he didn't. Follow me. Jesus went from love and delight to utter forsakenness. And some of us in this room know exactly what forsakenness is like. I can talk about love all day long and and you kind of get a blank stare but forsakenness, when I say that there's this feeling in the pit of your stomach that comes up starts to move into your chest because you know what that's like we don't have to imagine it we don't have to imagine the feeling of being rejected being alone being unloved you don't have to imagine what it's like when there was Warmth, and then suddenly there's a void where there was a smile and now there's nothing. It's terrifying. And that was Jesus' experience on the cross. Now, I've been doing this for a couple of weeks, but some of you are probably still wondering, like, Rick, why are we talking about the cross? It's Christmas time, right? Like, aren't we supposed to be talking about the lowing of cattle and shepherds doing whatever they do? and the sentimentality of it all. I mean, yes, I'm not entirely certain why the lowing of cattle is sentimental, but I mean, there's some of us for whom it probably is because it's our life. But uh, for others of us, I'm not really sure. It is almost Christmas. You are right. But as I've been arguing, you cannot have the cradle without the cross. Because Jesus' mission was to leave the fullness of love for the terror of forsakenness because the cross is ultimately about you and me. So as much as we talked about love to forsakenness, now let's look at forsakenness and love. Because to understand why Jesus did this, we need to understand ourselves a little better. Because uh, the same scriptures that speak of God's relationship of mutual love from eternity past also speak of the fact that he created, not because he needed something, but because he wanted to share that delight, share that love. And so he created us to be in that kind of relationship with him. Not because God needed something, he just wanted to share the joy of it. And so, because God exists in a community of love, you and I, made in his image, were made for love. We're made for it. I know that some of us get really angry at that. Because we've never experienced it. And it's kind of like telling a a parched person that there's water out there. And you're like, ah! I don't need your water. You do. But you won't give it to me. Okay. I understand. Right? We were made for that dependent, loving relationship with God, but we turned from him and betrayed him. And that's what the Bible calls sin. It's not breaking rules. It's breaking a heart. It's not violating a code. It's violating a person. It's not primarily an issue of behavior. It's an issue of the heart. Because the Bible says that unlike what we normally get in culture, and this morning I was listening to someone more or less say this. I was listening to them. I was praying and sitting somewhere, and I'm listening to this person say that this is what Christians believe, that, that sin is ultimately about your morality. Christians don't do X because God doesn't like X and God is happy with us when we do something different. See, you can be very moral and very distant from God because we often use our moral or seek our morality independently, trying to get a status for ourselves. We're seeking life apart from God. And when we do that, when we, when we betray God, our situation shifted. And so you have Paul, right here in Colossians 1, who describes us. And you, that would be you and me, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, I, when, I, when we hear this, some of us get skeptical, right? Because it sounds like God is like getting too uppity. But notice that Paul does not say God got mad and cast us away and made us his enemy. It says that we were alienated and enemies in our minds. Literally, in our minds. Hostile in mind. In other words, we pulled away from him. We hated him. Because you and I don't want to be dependent on God. We don't want to be dependent on anyone. So we turn from him. We don't trust him. So we became hostile in mind and enemies of God. Now, that is not to say that God is happy with us, right? Betrayals always bring guilt. That's the way betrayals work. But it is to say that what we are not dealing with is an insecure God to whom we are neutral towards. We are dealing with a loving God that we have betrayed and with whom we want nothing to do. Our sin had alienated us from God and in that relationship we were made for. And this is why, this is why, this is why you and I always struggle with this innate sense that we are alienated. This is why we can walk into a party full of our closest friends and feel unknown and alone. This is why you can find the one and still lay in bed at night lonely. The writer of uh, one of the Old Testament books, Ecclesiastes, said that God had put eternity into the hearts of men. And what that means is that we are fundamentally made for an eternal person. Some writers uh, talk about it in terms of a God-shaped whole, which is poetic and cute. But what it's getting at is the fact... That we were made for an eternal person. Relationships can't fully satisfy us. Not the best marriage in the world. Not the closest friends in the world. Not the, the adulation of millions. They can't fix our feeling of alienation because we were made for a relationship with God. Our problem is relational. But it's relational with Him. Now... Let's bring these together. Why did Jesus come if only to be forsaken by God? Well, it's because God was looking for restoration with us. He was seeking that, right? So 1 John 3.1, as we look at adoption and love. 1 John 3.1, look at how... Let's see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And And then he says in another place, that same writer... Says in the chapter one of his gospel that those who received him, that is Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. But how is it that aliens and enemies become sons and daughters? Friends, this is why Jesus was forsaken. I say this over and over, and I've said it a couple times in the series, and I want to make sure we get it. The logic of Christianity is always substitution, it is always substitution. We mess things up when we sought to become God. So God becomes human to make things right, to heal our alienation, to deal with our status of enemy, and he does it by taking our place. Jesus was beloved. He was delighted in, not just in his baptism, but every minute of his life. He led that life of vibrant relationship with God that we were made for. But then he died that death that we deserve, that forsakenness that we earned. And that's what the cross is about. That's what Christmas is about. That's why that baby's sleeping in the manger. That's what he came for. On the cross, Jesus took the place of God's enemies. He was alienated in our place. Our sin earned us only judgment. But Jesus loved us by taking that judgment for us. So why was Jesus forsaken? He was forsaken for me. Because I like looking spiritual a whole lot better than being spiritual. Because I am quick to turn from God to my distraction of the month to ease my feelings of inadequacy. Because I don't like being inconvenienced by people. In this love thing. But because Jesus was forsaken, I can be called a child of God. And friends, this is why the, the work of Jesus is called good news, gospel, and not good advice. Because good advice would be what God gives us. to. Hey, here's some good advice to make you right with me. But good news is this is what I did to make things right with you. To make you right so that you can live out that rightness in the world. He bore the judgment of God's rejection we were due so that if we simply receive that gift in Jesus we can enter into that relationship we were made for. Enemies can be children by faith. Forsakenness can change to belovedness by faith in Christ. Now, I want to bring this home to us in a couple ways. You and I were made for love. But oftentimes, we make that, we make some loves carry more freight than they were ever meant to. Here's what I mean. The fact that we were made for love is why we hunger for it so much. It's why some of us in this room, when I talked about Jesus being gushed upon by the Father, got stiff in our hearts and started to tense up. Because we don't believe we will get it. The Bible tells us that we were made for a love that's eternal. That is why no matter how much love we get, it never seems like enough. And some of us are so starved for it. That that we'll do anything to get it and anything to keep it. Right? Because we want the love of others to tell us something about ourselves. That I'm special. That I matter. To ease that feeling that something is wrong with me. In other words, to make us right. But that kind of love was never meant to carry that freight. Delight is the same, right? Because for many of us, the idea of delight, the idea of someone enjoying us is so foreign, it seems so Pollyanna-ish, that we have long since given up on delight and we're fine with being desired. Delighted in? I don't know. Desired, I can do. And, And we're far better, far more likely to settle for the idea of being possessed, being used instead of being known. If you're looking this morning for love to make you right, can I suggest, it's just a suggestion, that so long as you are looking for love to do this for you, you'll never be free to love others. And you certainly will never be free to receive love because you'll be too terrified to lose it. Because if you love others, or if if the love of others is what makes you right, then you will need to do whatever you can to get it and anything you can to keep it. It becomes a commodity to be chased. The Bible would say it becomes a God to be worshipped. You'll begin to look at people, not in terms of how you can love them or enjoy them, but how you can do things to get them to love you. And you will be terrified of them learning something about you that will make them abandon you. And listen, some of you are like, Rick, you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) on this one I do. Because most of my adult life has been framed by abandonment. Abandonment of when I was a kid. I'm terrified of it. Just like you are. Some of you are. Some of you totally relate. You're with me. But if you believe instead that you've been freely given the status of beloved by someone who knew you completely... Like, knew you to the core. Not just knew what you like to present. But knew those secrets that you don't like to tell. Right? Those, those places with those dark places that you don't tell in parties. Right? Like, that, that kind of thing. That they knew you that deeply and then died to make that status of beloved secure. If you believe that, that's, that this status of beloved has been offered to you, not on the basis of anything you've done... And so because of that, there's nothing you can do to lose it. If you believe that, then you will actually be free to love others and to receive their love freely because their love or their removal of it cannot affect the fact that you are beloved of God. See, Jesus went from beloved to forsaken to take you from forsaken to beloved, from stranger to child so by faith in him you can actually be freed from your feverish search for acceptance because the one that you actually are hungering for truly accepts you. Now that's an amazing thing. But as we conclude, I want to I want to I want to get to three responses, three potential responses, and my guess is that one of us we're in one of these three, okay, this morning. The first The first response is I can't, I can't believe this. And that's where some of us are at, right? Because for many of us in this room, it's either too good or seems too foolish to believe that something can be given this freely, that it could be this true. I agree. It is that good. And believing in this does seem that foolish. But let me suggest something. If you can't bring yourself to believe this to be true today, and let me be clear that when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about receiving the love of God through Jesus Christ, which is um, part and parcel to being a Christian. If you can't believe this this morning, if this all just seems like mumbo-jumbo, can I suggest you should really want this to be true? Even if you just can't come to it this morning. Because if this is true, then the God who made you, the God who you've betrayed still wants to be with you and has done everything necessary for that to happen. He isn't asking for penance, he isn't asking for retribution. He's just asking for you. He just wants you. So maybe you don't believe any of this today. Maybe Christianity to you has been this stuffy backward way of viewing the world. What if it's this though? What if it's that? What if it's that kind of free, freely given love? Wouldn't you want that to be true? So, first response is I can't believe this. The second is I agree in principle. And that would be my guess, is probably most of us in this room, uh, because we can agree intellectually yes, love of God is rich and free and yada, 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 but we can't really fully accept it. It's in our heads, we know the right answer. But we don't live like it, which means that it doesn't make that 8 to 10 inch journey between our brain and our heart. It just doesn't ever seem to come out. And Like I said, I think that's most of us in this room. Because if you're a Christian, uh, many of us, especially in in the tradition of which this church is a part, we love receiving justification, right? This idea that I could be right with God, which to us is some kind of legal transaction, which it is that also. We're fine with that. But the idea of receiving God's love, that's, I don't know. I'm not sure we we can do that. And we refuse to accept God's love in Jesus because we want to make ourselves lovely first. Or we think we should be able to make ourselves lovely. But listen to me, guys. God's love is what makes you lovely. You are lovely because he loves you. Not the other way around. That means you have to let go of control. Because when we say, I know God loves me, but I can't love me, what that really is saying is, I know your God loves me, but mine doesn't. Mine can't. To actually receive the love of God by faith in Jesus means you have to give up control and let the status He gives you define you. Instead of the one you got from those people who rejected you, whether that's your parents or a spouse or even your children or some friend, like, it it doesn't matter. You need to let his status define you. You are not broken beyond repair. By faith, you are a child of God. So I can't believe it. I agree in principle. And the last response, which is probably a few of us, is i got no other hope but this. The amazing thing about being freely loved is that when you do, when you know that you are delighted in, without reference to what you do, when you know that, like, nothing that I do changes the fact that this person loves me with a, with a relentless, relentless, fierce love then you will do whatever you can to please that person. Because there's there's no risk involved. There's no risk of of you messing up and them going, ah! You messing up and them saying like, whoa, you had me fooled. I thought you were this, but you're this. I can't do this anymore. You're completely safe, completely secure. You can love with reckless abandon. Because you know... That you were once forsaken, but now you are loved because the one who was loved became forsaken in your place. Would you pray with me? Father, during the Christmas season, most of our hymns, a lot of our, our thoughts, even as Christians, go to the great cosmic significance of the incarnation. And it is significant. For by your incarnation, Lord, you drew humanity into the life of God. And by your work, Jesus, you didn't just set us right, you set all creation right. The cosmos has been reconciled to God, and that is glorious. But lest we miss that the cosmos includes us, give us grace to know that you did this out of love for just people in general but for us in particular you love with a particular love not a generalized benevolence that's weak but a strong love give us grace to receive that whether it's for the first time or maybe it's just the first time in the last 20 minutes we need to receive it spirit you have got to be active to do this For we are hostile in mind. So we ask that you would. And that as you make us secure in the love of God through Jesus, pray that you would make us lovers of others. To be showing the love of God and Jesus to other people. Because that love has so filled us that it just overflows from us. We ask for you to do this for our good, for the city's good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.